Please keep your Bibles open at 1 Samuel 17 there. Let's pray again. Heavenly Father, it is such a a well-known and remarkable story that we're looking at today, and we ask that the familiarity of it won't stop us from seeing the significance of it and from uh, knowing what it is that you want us to hear from this. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, and probably confirmed by the show of hands uh, that we had previously, I think the story of David and Goliath probably is one of the best known stories in the Bible, and certainly at least in the Old Testament. Yeah, Think about how often you've heard the expression, it was a David and Goliath struggle. You're not even in a church context, but you say that expression, and everyone knows what you mean, right? You know, a, a, a giant opposition, usually evil in connotation, against a small, uh, weak hero. We hear it described of court battles between, say, the corporate giant and the small family business or individual who dares to take on that almost unwinnable situation to stop that corporate Goliath from trampling on the little guy. We call that a David and Goliath struggle, and everyone knows what we mean. And not surprisingly, I suppose, this year, We've heard it described, or I've heard it described, of the war between Russia and Ukraine. You Google, you know, David and Goliath, Ukraine, and you will see news articles equating the war in Russia with the David and Goliath story. We call that a David and Goliath struggle. It is such a famous story, and it's used to describe so many situations. It's, It's kind of become like a moral lesson that we kind of apply to a whole bunch of situations to our own lives, where we're told, you know, be the David to your Goliath. Or I found an article that said five powerful lessons for success from David and Goliath. And because it is so familiar and because it does have all these kinds of connotations attached to it, I think it can be difficult sometimes to strip that back to hear the real account of the real David and Goliath. And hopefully that is what we're going to be doing today. And as we do that, we're going to be recognising that this fits into a bigger story in the Bible, a story that kind of we heard last week of God choosing one man, anointing him and giving him his spirit to be his king of his people, a man after his own heart, which of course is going to lead us to the story of Jesus as we began to look at last week, but we'll get to that later. But today we are hearing of that one man, David. And I thought as we begin to kind of come and and think about this, I, I thought I'd start with asking a question of each one of us. And that question is, what is your biggest problem? What is your biggest problem? That thing maybe that fills your mind with concern or worry or fear, that thing that occupies your thoughts That thing that if it was gone, then your life would definitely be that much better. Can you think of something? Well, right up front, I want to say that God's word to you about David and Goliath is not, first and foremost, about giving you a better way to deal with that big problem, to deal with that Goliath of a problem, so to speak. Instead, what I think this does for us is it corrects what our real problem actually is and points us to the real answer, the real solution that God has given us for that problem. And it all centres around the Lord's anointed. 
He is the hero of this story. And it's about not putting ourselves too quickly into his shoes, but instead letting him be the unique person that God has chosen to provide the salvation that we need. So let's get into it. And the first thing, the first point we're going to see is that God's anointed sees the way that God sees. God's anointed sees the way that God sees. Last week we met the Lord's anointed, the young David, that young shepherd boy that God had chosen and the prophet Samuel had anointed him to be the next king of Israel. And when we saw him, he didn't look like Samuel the prophet expected the next king should look. We were told in last week's chapter, chapter 16, verse 7, the Lord does not look at the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Samuel, the prophet, was tempted to look at the tall, impressive-looking sons of Jesse, the older brothers of David, and think that's the kind of king that Israel needs. But God said, no, don't look at his impressive stature and his great height. That is not what, the, that is not what God sees. And with that in mind, it'd be hard not to be impressed, in a negative sense, with the impressive stature and height of the literal Goliath that we meet in today's passage, wouldn't it? The Philistine champion named Goliath. Now, the Philistines have been out of the story for a while in 1 Samuel, but if you remember from earlier, from last year when we looked at this, the Philistines were the neighbouring nation that kept invading Israel. And now, again, in today's passage, they are at it again. And there is one Philistine who gets all the attention. And how could he not? I mean, he's huge. Have a look at how much attention is given to his size and his armour. He's about three metres tall and covered from head to toe in armour that was all but impenetrable. This was a man-mountain, a hulk of a man, dressed like a tank, and he was armed with weapons that were just as formidable. And this man stepped forward out of the ranks of the Philistine army to challenge the armies of Israel. And he said, choose a man to fight me. That is how we will determine who rules between our army and yours by a battle of champions. So two armies, Philistines and the Israelites, and a champion in the middle, a giant of a man. And twice in this passage, we are told how Saul and the Israelite army react to this challenge from Goliath. Verse 11 and verse 24, when they see him and when they hear him, they are filled with fear. They flee in fear. Even Saul himself, the king, the man Israel had chosen for exactly this kind of situation to go out and fight their battles for them, the man who himself stood head and shoulders above everyone else, even Saul was quivering in fear. And he certainly wasn't putting his hand up to go and fight this guy. Like the rest of Israel, Saul was shattered by fear. And it's into that atmosphere, dominated by fear, that the young shepherd boy named David enters the scene. And we're told that David wasn't even old enough or big enough to even go to the battle with his older brothers. 
Instead, his father has him going back and forth between the battle and back home in Bethlehem tending the sheep. And by the time that David enters the story, this so-called war has been going for 40 days. Now, I thought just as a comparison, I looked up the, the current war, the current invasion in Ukraine has been going on for 66 days. So, you know, similar kind of length of time, a little bit longer in that case. But 40 days, that's, it's quite a length of time, except that we see that during these 40 days, nothing has happened. No battle, at least, has happened. Instead, every morning and every evening, Goliath would come out and shout his defiant mockery of Israel. And day after day, every morning and every evening, the response was the same. Israel run and hide. And so they're stuck, it seems, in this cycle of fear and hiding and they seem powerless to do anything about it, and they are. But on this particular day that we see David, something changes. For the 80th time now, Goliath steps out and delivers his speech, and the response for the 80th time is the same, except that on this day, one thing changed. That is, at the end of verse 23, we are told... David heard it. That's a tiny detail that we could easily overlook, but it's a detail that will ultimately change the course of this battle and, in the end, change the course of the history of Israel and, indeed, of the world. David, the Lord's anointed, heard the mocking defiance of Goliath. And that's not all David heard. He heard something else as well. He also heard Saul's strategy for dealing with this problem as a rumour spread about the camp. Have a look at verse 25 with me. Verse 25 says, Now the Israelites had been saying, Do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. That's what Saul has been saying, it seems. And, of course, the irony is that Saul was the man who Israel had chosen to go out and fight their battles for them, like exactly this kind of situation. But now Saul is looking for someone else to do that exact same thing and is putting forward a reward for them to do that. And Saul is about to meet the most unlikely of candidates. So David hears that rumour floating around the camp And that's what stimulates his response in verse 26. Verse 26 says, David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Now, it seems to me that there are probably two things going on in David's response here. See, he could just be wanting to clarify the rumour. You know, tell me again, you know, what's the reward for killing this guy? And that in itself is remarkable because no one else is even asking that question, right? It's not, even, it's not at the top of anyone else's list of things to find out because they're not even thinking about the possibility of fighting this guy. They're too busy running and hiding. But I reckon David's second question, also in verse 26, colours how we should read the first one. That is, we see a tone of utter indignation 
in David's question. He is, he is indignant at this mockery of Israel that that should be allowed to continue. So really, I think we should read verse 26 like this. David is saying, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? I mean, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? See, David knows that mockery of Israel is a mockery of the God who protects Israel. And he is zealous for the honour of God. And so he's indignant that this mockery should be allowed to continue. And so you can imagine him saying, why should we need any reward? We should consider it a privilege to be able to remove this mockery that tarnishes the name of our God, the only living God. Now, the reward is a bonus at best. As rich as it is, that reward cannot compare to David's desire to see this mockery come to an end. So do you see how David sees things differently to everyone else? Particularly how he sees things differently to Saul and the rest of the Israelite army? Everyone else sees Goliath from the outside. They see this muscle-bound meathead, this intimidating man-mountain standing before them, and it causes them to run in fear. But David, a man after God's own heart, sees Goliath from God's perspective. For him, the size of Goliath makes no difference. All he sees is some guy who is standing in mocking defiance of God and his people, and so he is stirred up in passionate zeal for the honour of God. That's David, the Lord's anointed who sees things differently because he sees them with God's eyes, so to speak. And not only does the Lord's anointed see the way that God sees, the next thing we see is that he also trusts that God will save. The Lord's anointed trusts that God will save. So, reading on, when Saul hears about David going around the camp and asking the questions that he's asking, seemingly trying to stir up some kind of response amongst the people, Saul sends for David. Now, clearly, Saul sees just like everyone else sees. He hears David's offer to go and fight Goliath and Saul kind of looks him up and down and he sees that he is just a boy, just a youth. And he says, there is no way you can do this. That beast out there has been a warrior since he was your age. He will eat you for breakfast. But this is where we see David's trust in God. It's not that David wasn't pretty good with his hands. You, you see he's successfully fought off lions and bears. I don't know if anyone knows someone who's successfully fought off lions and bears, but I bet if you did, you would be pretty impressed. But David's point when he mentions that is not that he's good with his sling. His point is that the Lord has rescued him and he is confident that the Lord will do it again with this Philistine that stands in defiance of God and his people. And David basically says the same thing to Goliath himself when he goes out to battle. You notice that Goliath is almost insulted that Israel would send such a puny representative to go out and fight him without even any real weapons, just sticks and stones. And he expects to stomp on David like an ant. 
But again, this is where we see that David's trust is in God who saves, not in size or in powerful weapons. Have a look at verse 45 with me. So Goliath has just scorned and mocked David, and David says to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. See, David is saying it's not your size or my size or any weapons that we may or may not have that is going to make the difference here. It's the Lord Almighty, the living God, the God of armies who can save without sword or spear. There's an expression that I've heard, you might have heard it, you don't bring a knife to a gunfight. You heard that expression? I've never been in a knife fight or a gunfight and I don't plan to be hopefully in either of those, but you get the idea, right? You'll be hopelessly, literally outgunned if you bring the wrong kind of weapons to the battle that you're coming to. And it seems, from Goliath's perspective at least, that the same applies when it comes to sticks and stones in a sword fight, especially against someone so well-armed and armoured as Goliath is. But David knows, David trusts, that weapons aren't what's going to make the difference here. In fact, what he says is that his lack of weapons will show that it is God who saves even through David's weakness, even through David's smallness, even through David's lack of weapons, God's power to save will be demonstrated. And so this looks like, from the outside, a battle between a giant and a boy, but in fact, it's a battle between gods. David says, I come in the name of the Lord. And in verse 43, Goliath cursed David by his gods. Now, we've heard about the God of the Philistines before. The God of the Philistines' name was Dagon. And we heard about Dagon back in chapter 5 when Dagon fell face forward in front of the Ark of the Covenant with his hands broken off, the statue of Dagon. And so David sees that this really is a battle between that dead God and the only living God. And because he sees it that way, that's where his confidence comes from. That's where his trust comes from. He trusts that God can and will save him and through him the rest of the Israelites. And this brings us to our final point. By his anointed, by God's anointed, God saves his people from an enemy too powerful for them. I'm sure we're fairly familiar with the story from this point. This is where really things speed up. David takes the stone in his sling and manages to find a spot on Goliath's forehead that was somehow not protected by that helmet that we just heard described earlier in the chapter. Goliath falls face down, just like his god Dagon had. And David takes Goliath's own sword, because David didn't have one, and cuts off Goliath's head. And you could say the crowd goes wild. The battle turns in an instant, the Philistines flee, the Israelites give chase, and a mighty victory was won that day through the Lord's anointed. God has won the victory. God has shown his power that he is the one who saves, and he has done it through the one who he has anointed and filled with his spirit for exactly 
this task. And as I mentioned at the beginning, as we reflect on this, the thing that we need to notice is the uniqueness of the Lord's anointed in this victory. That is, that we are not the David in this story. God saved his people from an enemy that really was too powerful for them. And he did it through the person that God has specifically chosen and anointed and empowered by his spirit for that task. And what this does, I think, to begin with at least, is it moves us away from that common way of thinking about David and Goliath where we say, we all have our Goliath to defeat. We just need to do it in the strength of God. You know, that, that way that we often read this story? No, what we have is the Lord's anointed who with the power of the Spirit has defeated the enemy that we never could have. And what we need to do is to get behind his victory, to get behind him. So if I could bring you back to that question that we started with, what is your biggest problem? I don't know what your answer was, but I suspect that many of us could come up with a problem or maybe even several problems where we think if this was gone or, or fixed or solved, then my life would be so much better. Maybe it's a, a relationship problem. Maybe it's a life circumstance. Maybe it's a health thing, a physical or a mental health problem or whatever it might be. We might find ourselves saying, that's the Goliath that I need God to fix in my life. I want to suggest that Jesus shows us a different perspective. Like David, Jesus sees with God's eyes and with absolute clarity what our real problem is. He himself said that he didn't come to solve people's problems one person at a time, one problem at a time. He came to deal with the heart of the real problem. And he, knew, and he did that because he sees the way that God sees, that our real problem is sin and death. That we treat our creator as an insignificance, the one who made us as a passing interest at best or a genie to rub the lantern and get our wishes when we want them. That when we refuse to live his way, we deny his authority and deny the goodness of the life that he has given us. That's what the Bible calls sin. And not just that it's something that we do, but it's something that holds power over us, that it holds us in the grip of death. Every day it shouts its ridicule of us. I mean, think about how much of life is directed at trying to distract or deny or delay or defeat death and its significance and its hold over our lives. All the while, never actually dealing with the heart of the problem. And there's nothing we can do about it. But there is something that Jesus did about it. He was stirred up with passionate zeal for the honour of God and with love for us. And he walked unarmed into the jaws of death for us. And he broke its power. He broke the power of sin and arose victorious. And 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that because of Jesus' death, and resurrection, it says, sin and death have been swallowed up in victory. Jesus has won that victory for us. And so they no longer hold power over us if we stand behind our anointed king. 
And because of that, we don't need to do what those Israelites did those 40 days that Goliath came out to shout his scornful um, cry. We don't need to run and hide when we are confronted by the overwhelming power of sin and death. We can step into the open, unafraid and unashamed. We can take our sin seriously, as seriously as God takes it. We can see it as as bad as God sees it, and we must. But even then, we need not be afraid, because our champion has won the victory for us, and now we can stand with him in that victory. That's your biggest problem that Jesus gave his life for. Now, I don't say that to to downplay or minimise any other problems that we might have in life. But what it does do, I think, is it, it forces us away from having a therapeutic Jesus, a Jesus who exists to primarily to defeat the the Goliath-sized problems in my life and to make my life better in that way. You know, the Apostle Paul begged God to take away a particular problem in his life. He called it a thorn in his flesh. But God said to Paul, no, my power is made perfect in weakness. Now, I don't know about you, but I find that hard to hear especially when I feel so aware of my weakness. And I think, no, God, don't do it like that. I want to see your power made evident in my strength. Isn't that what we want? Not my weakness. But it was the weakness of David and the weakness and seeming defeated death of Jesus that God's power was seen most clearly and absolutely where he broke the power of sin and death forever for us. And so God's power is seen in us, not as we are more winning and powerful, but as we rely on Jesus and his death for us and on nothing else and not on ourselves. Our weakness drives us all the more to our trust in Jesus, to the foot of the cross, where God's power is seen and God's victory was won once and for all. And so that we can say, praise be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do want to be winning and victorious in our lives. And we want those big problems in our lives to be ended But Father, we ask that you will drive us back to the real problem that you have seen in us, that Jesus came to solve in sin and death. And we ask, Father, that you will help us to see that all the more clearly and cling to it all the more firmly, that we will trust you in that, so that we can say, praise be to you, because you have given us this victory through Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.